welcome to our first episode of Fringe, the new podcast from the Modern Insurgent, where we talk to various experts from around the world about groups on the edges of society and why they are there and about what they mean to the world. Today, we are joined by Roberta Garza. Uh, I'm incredibly excited to be speaking with Roberta today. Uh, I first found out about her through a podcast, which is uh, Sacred Scandal, and I couldn't recommend it enough. So everyone, make sure you go on Spotify or Apple or wherever you find your podcasts and give that a listen, because it will give a longer, more in-depth discussion of what we are looking at today, which should be a very interesting discussion. So today, we're going to be talking about Mexican megachurch, La Luz del Mundo. So we'll kind of start off today, Roberta. How did you get to the position you were in today? Well, uh, you'll have to be more specific, but I, I guess <laughs> regarding the church, right? Yeah. Uh, well, it started a long time ago because um, I was a journalist in Mexico at the time, and I, the governor of my home state flew all the way to Guadalajara, where the church's, um, let's say, flagship, flagship community is located to attend the church's main feast, which is called the Santa Cena, or it could be translated as sacred dinner, or holy dinner. And it basically is a feast they invented to celebrate the, what they call the, their apostle of God, which is the, like their leader, like their pastor, their main pastor. And it's three generations of pastors. The church was founded in 1926. They all belong to the same family. It was passed from the founder to his son and then to his grandson. Um, and, you know, they, they have built, they, they began by building a very interesting connection with the then Mexico's dictatorship. So they would provide, you know, because it's blind faith. These people were completely, completely in the thralls of the apostle. Whatever the apostle did, they did. And whatever the apostles told them to do, they did. So the apostle told them, okay, you have to go to this candidate's meeting and, you know, uh, like make these uh, banners and shout, you know, viva, viva to the candidate, whatever. They would do that. And in exchange, of course, and of course votes, when that counted, because the dictatorship, not so much, but popular support or the appearance of popular support was important to the dictatorship. So they were important in that sense. They had that in their pocket. There was a lot of people at their service first just in the city of Guadalajara, which is a major Mexican city, and then throughout the country and now throughout the world. But let's let's talk about Mexican politics because that's what where the city is. So that's what they do. They, they'd send people to support a candidate or another candidate, and in exchange, they would get basically free reign to, you know, buildings would never have any inspectors sent to them or, you know, they would let them do whatever they wanted. And they were indeed, to the outside, a very orderly, as cults often are, you know, the people didn't drink, the people were orderly, they were incredibly hardworking people, that kind of thing. So, so they prospered, definitely they prospered. And they got, again, they got enmeshed with the powers that be, and they knew how to handle that really well. So when the governor, to go back to the beginning, when the governor of my home um, state flew all the way to Guadalajara, which is like a thousand kilometers away, like an hour, an hour, one hour and a half a plane, just to kiss the ring of this the Joaquins of this guy of this this apostle of God, I, why why is he doing that? Oh, he wants to be president. He hadn't 
tossed his hat in the, in the ring yet, but he was gonna soon. But I, I gathered if he's doing this, it's because he wants to be president. Who, what do the people from a Northern state of the country care about these people down south? Nothing. So why is he doing this? Because he wants to be president. That was my research and that was my, you know, the article I wrote, that was all about that. My, the, gover the then governor of my home state that later became a presidential candidate who lost. But I did mention them in passing, like the, the religious group, the, in, just in passing, La Luz del Mundo, is this church that he went to kiss the ring of the guy, blah, blah, blah. And I did describe them as somehow uh, backwards. Why? Because, you know, the women are, they dressed long skirts, um, you know, they're not allowed to show any color, they're not allowed mm -hmm. to wear makeup or basically any makeup, any jewelry at all. They are very conservative in a way that's almost like a Taliban sort of culture. You know, women don't do, they're always subservient to the fathers and the husbands and the, the sons. Uh, and they're put in this earth to bequeath children for the church. That's that's sort of, in a nutshell, you know, what the role of women. So I thought backwards was a good word to use. And they took umbrage. They took offense and they sued me. And uh, you, yeah, and you can't sue, you, you know, you really can't sue. Uh, if you can't sue the substance of the article, like the facts of the article, then in Mexico there exists this thing that's... Um, the Council for Anti-Discrimination or something like that. Hmm. So they went there to sue me for discrimination because they, their argument was, I was discriminating the church by portraying it as a backward organization. Hmm. This means nothing. They didn't care if they won. I mean, of course they lost the one judge and then, but then they appealed and then another judge and then they appealed and then another judge and then they appealed. Because what they do, the group is very well known for harassment tactics, you know, legal harassment, such as, for example, Scientology does, and a lot of other cultish groups, you know, the, the landmark group or the, yeah, it's a common occurrence in modern or in, yeah, contemporary cults. So that's what they did. It thankfully stopped when the last apostle of God, meaning the grandson, was arrested in Los Angeles, and uh, then the you know, the crap hit the fan and they were exposed. But I had been sort of like looking into them and why are they doing this? And it, it just sounded so ridiculous to me that because of a passing sentence, that really wasn't that terrible. You know, they took so much umbrage. Who does that? Of course, high control groups do that. Why do they do that? Because they have a whole lot of darkness behind them. If not, they wouldn't react this strongly and i know that because my antenna are like huge because i was raised in one of them so i knew there was something wrong so i began like you know nitpicking and here and there and looking for this and looking for that and i just kept it all in a folder hmm. because you know that was it i didn't know what was really happening there had been reports i must say um there had been accusations not reports of a couple of people um some of them i do interview in the podcast and you know their stories by now uh, if you listen to it a couple of people that in 1997, they dared come forward. The dictatorship was still very strong. So they were basically crushed. One of them was, well, he was left for dead. He was knifed 60 times, uh, you know, kidnapped and then knifed 60 times, left for dead, blah, blah, blah. He went to the United States. Now he's an as under asylum program. Mm. But that happened. And in Mexico, nothing happened. It just got crushed. You know, if you go uh, and look for the, like, if you go to the, how do you call them? The, the attorney general's office. And okay, give me the copy of the case or, you know, the transparency 
mechanisms. Give me a couple. They would say, oh, no, that, that, that's been lost. There's nothing. No, we have nothing. There's nothing. Like, they, like that never happened. And But that was all the reports that had been, you know. And and what I thought at the time is, okay, maybe that, that happened with that apostle who's now dead. You know, with, with, the, with the second one who's now dead. Maybe the one that sued me, which is the third one, is like, yeah, you know, maybe this, it, it was just a one-off thing. I don't know. I really didn't know. Because they're very close. You cannot, for example, in the community they have in Guadalajara City, uh, it's basically a gated community. And if you walk inside or go inside, you park your car and you get out of your car or you just walk inside, there would be a very friendly, uh, mostly women do this. You know, they come to you and they were like, very, very friendly and very lovely and very amicably tell you, hey, hi, well, what's up? You know, what are you looking for? What do you, what do you need help? And they will never leave, you, leave your sight unless you leave. Then when you leave, then they stay. Mm. You know, it will be like that. So uh, it's very, very, very controlled. What, you know, they don't let people in. They don't, they, they have a very tight control over their organization. And um, yeah, that's how I got in, basically. That's how I got interested. And then when this guy got arrested, and thank God the lawsuits were dropped. Um, well, then I began my work in earnest. Like, okay, this, this is actually happening. And it's not just a one-off from the, you know, from the middle guy. It was like the three generations and et cetera. And mm. that's how this podcast came to be. Yeah. It's a, a really fascinating intro story to <laughs> kind of get involved in this kind of work with this group. Um. Were there inklings at the start that this was going to be as big as a story as it ended up being? Not for me. I mean, I I certainly thought that they were uh, a little bit culty to use, you know, like, yeah, there the, the were elements that definitely resonated with me and I knew hmm. there was something there. But you never know, especially with religious-minded uh, um, high-control groups, you never know how much it is in a, how much they do it as a dogmatic thing, as a, you know, this is sacred, we have to protect it, or how much they are actually being as violently harmful, perversely harmful as they ended up being. You never, I, I didn't know. I really didn't know. Uh, most of the dissenters were very badly crushed. They were contained. Uh, this is, again, this is a very, very, a tightly knit group you know you have the grandmothers and mothers and your sisters and your brothers and your uncles all they're there so if you see something that you don't like or if you're abused even and you don't you know you want to say something your family would not they would not only suffer through it but they would they would actually chastise you you know the families mm. most of these people were rejected abused again by their yeah. own families they were was it the, yeah. the story of was it Sochi Martin? Sochi, Sochi. Who, her aunt and yeah. kept yeah. It, it, I'm speechless even thinking about being in that kind of situation where even your family chastises you to that extent. Terrifying. Well, I don't. I don't know if it's been. No, it hasn't been aired. But I'll tell you. Um, there was one. Sochi certainly is a very prototypical. Um, abuse case in the church and she was incredibly brave and incredible and and she's a fantastic communicator so she was able mm. to you know to really uh, 
put forward the case against the church. She was able to vocalize it very clearly. And, and now she's pursuing a, a recall case against the church to declare them oh, a, yeah, exactly, a corrupt yeah. organization and to get, you know, damages and repairs, which mm. are completely. But if you see how her story, her mother, um, her mother was abused by the church leader. Uh, her, uh, her aunt was abused by the church leader. The mother couldn't make it. She became, you know, Unfortunately, she abused substances and she became unstable. So Sochi was raised by her aunt and she calls her mother because that this happens when she was a baby. When she became like, you know, 10, 11, she was gifted to the apostles by her own family. And she was given to them to abuse. And that happened and that, that's what she knew, but they were, they were indoctrinated. Okay, you must think this didn't happen with everyone in the church, but it, it did happen to a substantial amount of people in the church, and they were called the unconditionals, which is like the very hardcore followers of the Joaquin family uh, sect cult. Mm. Um, and these they they pledged their lives to the apostles and to the church, and they pledged their own children, you know, and they pledged their properties. It was like for your whatever you want to do, you know that. It, you do so they gifted it was usual it was normal if they had children if they had little girls which were good looking or whatever they it was very very common like it was expected to be you know for these children to be gifted to the apostles for their pleasure and such it was not an exception and she was able to shake out of it miraculously i mean it was it was really a tremendous struggle for her and she came through but of course she suffers the I mean, she's suffering right now and of course the whole family rejected her but there's another case that was particularly uh, hard for me to, you know, to investigate and to do because such so it came through. I mean, she's, I mean, she's suffering and she's, you know, hurt, of course. Well, it, it will be incredibly, anyone survived that unscathed. But these women, um, I'm not going to tell you the whole thing, but um, her father was a guard. Because they had armed guards, vigilantes. They had normal policemen in, you know, in the in the neighborhood, but they also had like a special guard, which they, they called the guard of the guard of Jericho, of Jericho, and that was like to guard the apostles. And those were all hardcore believers. And the father of this girl, who was also abused, of course, throughout in the church, was a member of this guard. He, he was armed. He carried guns. And when she, you know, decided to speak. And she was silenced many, many times over. She, you know, when the abuse started in the middle, then she married and she got terribly breakdowns. And, you know, she was silenced throughout. Um, and, but when she decided to speak, which is this time I, I'm telling you about in 1997, uh, when this group of people came forward and they were com completely crushed by the state, by the Mexican state and also by the church, the father said publicly that he wouldn't, you know, he wouldn't have, any problem, any doubt, if he needed to put a bullet between her, you know, his his daughter's head. Hmm. And what do you do with people like that? You know, how, how do you handle it? I mean, if you are, it's terrible to hear, it turns the stomach to, of people that have no, you know, no experience in the church whatsoever that we, we might live, you know, you live in London, we live in Paris, you know, I live in Europe, whatever. We're very far from that. And it, it you know, it, it shocks us. Imagine if you're that woman, you know, you, and your father tells you that. What do you do with yourself? How do you come out of it? You don't. It's 
so impossible to even put yourself in that situation i think like it's right it's just shocking to hear yeah exactly i I think it's one of the worst uh groups that i've ever encountered and you know that what's most uh astounding for me they were founded in 1926 and the abuse started since then the founder of the church abused okay the founder of the church his father was a widower and he married a younger woman that arrived to the family already with a young child with a young girl uh from another relationship and then the father passed away so the son the original the son from the from the father's first marriage which is meaning the founder of the church the apostle of god at that time took care of his stepmother and stepsister well the stepsister was 11 and he began raping her you know under his care under his house and then she had a child uh, around 13 14 whatever and people knew about that but you must understand this is the 30s and 40s it was not that terribly unusual in mexico for that to happen and you know in mexico not all over the world but that that sort of happened especially in rural mexico so that was it but anyway with the second with the second apostle when 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 this guy passed away and then his his son took over uh the son is called samuel he built he sort of um he was an incredibly modern mind institutionally he modernized the institution it wasn't anymore a local church at the service of one man it was you know his he, he thought big, let's go for the world. And this was a migrant church. This church had been founded. The father was stationed in the north of, the, like the founder, his name is Aaron. He was stationed in the north of the country during the Mexican Revolution. So he had contact with a lot, this was the 20s, with a lot of um, migrant pastors that came from the United States, from one of those waves of evangelic revivals in the US that happened at the mm-hmm. turn of that century. And these people came into Mexico to try to, you know, evangelize and to spread the word and whatever. So this Aaron, the founder of the church, by that time he was known by his birth name of Eusebio, but of course he baptized himself, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, you know the drill. So uh, he became Aaron when he was in the north of the country and then he went back to his hometown of Guadalajara or his uh, roots in Guadalajara. And, uh, but why was I telling you all this? Um, Oh, yes. That happened since the 20s. Then the, the son Samuel institutionalized the church. It became big in the United States and in Mexico. And then it went, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with El Salvador's president, Nayib Bukele. Nayib Bukele praised the apostle of the third apostle of God and gave him the title of like uh, Salvador's, you know, favorite son and things like that. So it's not like this is a little tiny church from the blah, blah, blah. Mm. But it's still nobody knew about them. How come nobody knew about them? I mean, it's beginning to come out. I have my podcast, HBO did a special. It's a, you know, a, a big uh, Netflix uh, show is coming soon, or I think it's coming soon. Uh, so it's like sort of now we're getting to know these people, but they were there since the 20s. And the progression of abuse and violations and, and again, violence and perversions of these people became worse and worse with each iteration of apostles. And nobody had them under the radar. It, nobody. They were like complete, you know, they just slipped through the cracks. It's incredible. I don't know how that happened. Maybe because 
mostly their constituents are poor people, are poor, poor people from Latin origins, mostly. Mm. So nobody cared about them, you know. Yeah. I don't know. I really don't know. I, I don't have an answer. I don't know. It, it, it does astound me that it took so much to happen yeah. for the story to get out. And especially in like today's day and age, how it yeah. could go on for decades and no one no one do anything about it. Yes, it's absolutely. Terrifying to me. Um, yes. So that kind of leads me on to the next question. Nasson. He he seemed like a particularly bad person yeah. from whether it's birth or whether it's very young. He seemed like as soon as he got any kind of power, he was going to kick it into overdrive and abuse it. Yeah. How do you think he ended up like that? Yes, I have an explanation for that. Um, we are at the third apostle line, right? This is the third one. Uh, Nason is the third one. It was The founder was Aaron, then the son was Samuel, and then the grandson is Nason. He came into power in 2014 when his father died. But you must think of this. Um, Aaron founded the church. He started from nothing. He was a minority, uh, you know, evangel evangelical religions, you know, Protestant, Lutheran, whatever, whatever denomination you want that's not Catholic in Mexico is like completely marginal. Or it wasn't until the losing month. So it was completely marginal. You know, he had to struggle. He had to fight. The neighbors were very hostile against him. You know, the people in the city were very hostile against him until he became, you know, this, this, until he sort of built this neighborhood just for his people. It's enclosed and they were only believers in the whole neighborhood. And then they had the backing of the dictatorship, blah, blah, blah. So that's how they sort of protected themselves and they became big. But you must understand, he had to struggle and he had to like fight against the currents of society, of culture to became something. And then the son, Samuel, was born into that and he saw his father struggle. He had to struggle himself. He had to struggle to build the church, you know, and that was it. And then a son, when he was born, he was already the prince. You know, he was a princeling. And they call that they're the royal family for their believers. They're, they're referred to royal princes and royal family. Hmm. So they're, because they're like, gods you know like king david well they're like king you know like um like yeah like really they're kings of heaven sort of like that kind mm. of imaginary if you can think of it uh so what happened at this, at this time is that he he was born into this incredible privilege where anything he did was beautiful anything we did was amazing he could do no wrong he was the you know one of the sons of the the apostle of God, the servant of God, the prophet of God, God's might on earth, the only one, because that's, this is what they believe. This, these people believe that since the since Christ ascended to heaven and the original apostles passed on, the church was corrupted, like right from then and there. And then the Vatican, well, they made it even much worse. It was like super corrupted, you know, when the Vatican got institutionalized, etc. And that was it. Earth, everyone was lost. Nobody could get into heaven. You know, God was like mad with his stewards on earth until he chose Aaron to restore the, the grace of God on earth. So if this, this people, these people were put into earth to sort of restore God's kingdom on earth. And mm. they are the representatives of God on earth. So you must understand when this guy was born, they were already big. They were already cons consolidated. They already had 
churches all over the world. They had a huge presence in the United States. They had an incredible amount of cash flow, you know, unaccounted of the books, etc. So when he was born, he was already born into this incredible privilege where everyone, if he wanted something, he would get it. And nobody would ask questions. Whatever he wanted, he would get. No questions asked. You know, the God is asking it for you. And he is the one of the heirs of the apostles. So, you know, that was it. Samuel still had to struggle for his worth. And he has to, he really had to struggle. Because you must remember also this. They were, the, the founder, Aaron, was the apostle of God. But it was not a family dynasty at that point. Nobody knew what would happen. I mean, he would die and, what, and then what? No more apostle of God? Or who would, you know, take his place? Maybe there would be another, someone to steward the church forward, but would he still be the representative of God? Nobody knew. And of course, that happened, you know, and the, there was the son. But the, again, the son, Samuel, had to struggle to become the apostle of God himself. It was not a given. Nobody knew. Maybe one of the elder pastors was going to be, you know, the, the heir to his father's church. And he was just going to be the son of the ex-apostle that died. Mm -hmm. It was very shaky, shaky. When a son was born, no, that wasn't, no, it was like, it was very consolidated at that. Someone in his, either he or one of his brothers would become the apostle and would lead the church. So he knew, so the power he had since he was a baby is unfathomable. Hmm. So again, who's there to check your instinct, your worst instincts, your worst, nobody. So he, especially you know, when he, there's that level of devotion around yes. you as well, like it just compounds against each other, I guess. Well, one of the things that were, I find most perverse about this group is that, you know, they told these women that were, and, and boys, because some of the people abused were boys, of course, but mostly women. They told most of these women that were being abused in the most horrible ways, they told them that there were blessings. You know, that they were being bestowed blessings and that they mm. should take them. Yeah. So I think yeah. that was one of the quotes that stuck with me the most from the podcast that you've done is, uh, I was forced to take my clothes off for the apostle and just kind of the way the emotion that was held in that like it was this was a good thing and it it was very hard with some of yeah. the some of the quotes so far I yes i know and even harder for you actually talking to them it's terrible i mean i have to sort of detox from time to time you know so i've yeah. taken my time away <laughs> And it's been a long haul. I mean, I've been working on this for about a year and a half. And mm. uh, I mean, now it's airing. I, we're finishing the last, the very last chapters. We're finishing them. But I, we did interview, I did interview um, a lot of the survivors, a lot of the people, the witnesses that were there. And uh, the church denied any, any, you know, we asked them to speak, but they wouldn't. We got one of them, actually, for one of the episodes but he didn't know what was going on. He uh, okay. because well, yeah. Well, the thing is, they are now very much in cahoots with the Mexican, with the current Mexican president. So they're again very, very much in favor with the powers that be in Mexico. They never ceased to be, but they sort of stayed more in a fringe. Like they were not as uh, as coddled as in the beginning of the di dictatorship. But this president is sort of a you know he be, he sort of he's a very backward thinking guy he wants to take the country back to the 60s and 70s during the worst time of the dictatorship so of course the loser mundo stepped in and said hey i'm in i'm here again 
So they started sort of this um, group political affiliation or a political association, really, which is sort of the tr threshold to found your own political party. And they have said it vocally, like we are in the service of the present. We are in the service of the present's agenda. So we interviewed one of them where they created this political association. And and yeah, he they gave us quotes about that. Um, uh, but most of them, most of the rest of the church didn't decline to, you know, decline to, to speak. But we did get a lot of the people that were involved, both in 97 and we got Sochi, of course, and we got, you know, some of the, we could not get the five women that banded together to bring, oh, because that's a thing, to bring the church down in the case against the last apostle in California where he was arrested and he was put on trial, etc. And you'll hear it in the next chapters that the DA screwed up really badly. I mean, they failed this woman miserably, but yeah. But there were five ex-church members that were abused, of course. One of them was the niece of the apostle. Uh, his own niece and he was she was particularly brutally abused um and they banded together anonymously because most of them were abused when they were underage so they you know the state granted them the possibility of being become so they're called the jane Doe's one to five basically okay. um why am i saying this uh oh yeah we could not interview them because they are now well first of all because they're anonymous uh the church did find out the identity of a couple of them and they did harass them terribly and whatever family they had left with them you know they, poor people i mean these women are they only they got abused and then they got re-victimized and re-abused through the trial mm -hmm. um and only to come up with a very very diminished sentence because of the da screw up it was it was a terrible terrible thing to happen but you know we didn't interview them because they were anonymous and because uh, they are now filing a civil suit against the church as individuals and it wasn't a criminal case it was where they were the main witnesses and you know yes they secured the conviction well he had to plead guilty and why did he plead guilty because there was this incredible amount of evidence that was confiscated from his ipad and his iphone when he landed his private plane in los angeles you know the feds uh, feds uh, homeland security etc they confiscated that and there was this Wikipedia of pornography, all not one. Yeah. So, yeah. So, I mean, he was going to go, you know, he was going to be put away. And yeah. if there was a trial, some of that would have come out. Yeah. I mean, you cannot reproduce pornography, but you can certainly say, you know, the agent can, can testify on their oath. Yeah, we saw these pictures and we saw this. And some of that we do know that they actually, because in some of the hearings, some of the agents did describe this, but it would have come out much like in in, this, in its entirety mm. and he wanted definitely needed to avoid that so he pled guilty uh, for minor charges very minor charges yeah. yeah it's a shame that he isn't going to face the yeah the true full... extent of the justice he should right exactly and and, and now that this you know the, the prosecutors etc saying well more women were abused and yes they were uh, come forward and you know may, let's make another case how are they going to do that if they were completely dragged to the mud and brutalized only to have them screw up and give them like a slap in the wrist sentence mm. it's so hard I, I mean i don't know what's going to happen there would just be no truth in the system by any of these women to really come forward again and i can't exactly. blame them yeah. it, it, who can blame them it's it's terrible yeah. but it's true and that's what happens with these people i mean there's it's how hard long to... did he actually get in prison 
he got uh, 16 years and a couple of months. Uh, 16 years and eight months, I believe. And he already had served, let me see, two years. Hmm. So that brings it to 14. If you, you know, good time, good behavior, he could be there for 10 years. Five, yeah. Easy. Yeah. And yeah. if you had to, I know it's hard, but if you had to put kind of a number on the scale of the amount of abuse over the decades by all three generations, where do you think would, is it the thousands? People? Tens of thousands? Mm. No, no. I, I mean, it's not such a, I mean, it's a big church, but probably the hundreds of girls, hundreds, mm. a couple of high hundreds of girls, but it's not just the, um, it's not just the amount. It's the, the brutality of it. I mean, he mm. made an underage boy that was sort of half drugged and with a mask in his head, in his eyes, you know, for, um, have sex with his mother. The mother was consenting to that. And then with another couple of other ladies over there, you know, just hanging for the pleasure of it. And um, he made uh, some people, um, well, this is Nasson. I'm talking about Nasson. He made some women have sex with animals for his, you know, and he watched. Uh, the father, Samuel, one of the, actually the ones, the, the, the woman that's now currently the podcast, the, the, the episode of this past week. And she's gonna, we're going to cover two episodes with her. Because she's a very interesting case. She was abused when she was eight years old by Samuel. Uh, she was raped by Samuel when she was eight years old. And then um, she became one of the groomers. So it's a, you know, yeah, victim, victimizer. Mm -hmm. It's really tough to, it's very hard, to, you know, to, to grasp that. Especially with the whole religious element to it as well. I can imagine it's even easier to get sucked into right. that role. Well, well, she, you know, she, uh, her family, she's na her name is Alondra Ocampo. And her family converted when she was one year old. So, you know, they, there was no, no coming back from that. No chance. And again, it's, oh, it's how many blessings, you know, you're being given, etc. And, uh, yeah. And, you know, people don't understand. It's like a Stockholm syndrome. You sort of side with the abuser and be, you become the, you side with your abuser. You become your, the abuser also hmm. in order to not be abused, you know, in order to hold a, a smidgen of power that allows you to sort of, you know, fall have a little bit of control over your life where before you had absolutely nothing. But, you know, she was rendered um, sterile. She was raped so badly by Samuel that she she she's, she can't have children anymore. Mm. Yeah, sent to the hospital, etc. That's what I mean. That's what I'm talking about. Mm. I mean, yeah, it's not just like, okay, I'm raping you and then you move on to the next one. No, no, it's, it's, it's really an incredibly perverse uh, organization and so many people again not all of them there are some incredibly as as in all cults as in all religion incredibly good people there why do you go get close to these organizations because you why do people get close to these organizations because you want to change your life you want to give your life some meaning you want to become i'm a very happy atheist by the way but you know i understand that some people have these needs and they want to get better they want to become more spiritual they want to do something for the world they want to you know, bring some sense, some purpose in their lives. It's not because they're evil. They're just mm. quite the contrary. And a lot of the people in La Luz del Mundo are like that. You know, they're very nice, they're wonderful people. But there's this group of unconditionals, again, that were for, some of them were innocently forced to do stuff that, you know, like, for example, and what I mean by innocent, they were forced to sign over the, 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 the dues to their houses, to the apostles. 
So, you know, what do you do? You've gifted the apostle. You're, and these are, again, um, blue collar workers. So what little they have, now it's in the hands of the apostle. What do you do? How do you, you know, are you going to, if you say something that you don't, you know, if you see something that you don't like and you say something, you're going to end up with your maybe one-year-old kid and your, you know, wife and your more, whatever, on the street. Well, that's that's mm. what's going to happen. You're going to lose your job because all of them are interconnected. You know, they, they work together. They have businesses in the neighborhood. So what, what's going to happen to your family? You know, and they, they, these are, again, not bad faith people, but they're, they're caught by the balls, literally. What are you, you, you know, what are you going to do with it? So it's, it's hard. The, the, the amount of perversion and control these people had over their flock is incredible. And that's how they, you know, got away with it for so long and with yeah. the complicity of the authorities. So we've, we've spoken about some of the abhorrent crimes that, uh, Nasson and Samuel kind of uh, forced upon a lot of these women's lives. What I right. want to get into is because it kind of stuck with me from some of your episodes is the extent to which this was generational for some of these women. Like that, there are women that have been there, being whether it's being abused or being in the fold for decades. Yes. And that's quite interesting to me. Well, um, I don't know what to tell you. It's, I mean, it is interesting, definitely. But um, it is not uncommon to pass, you know, because beliefs are strengthened, are birthed and strengthened in the family. You get, you know, the first trains of thought that come to your head are you know, when you listen, you know, the people that have their, grew up with their family, with their parents or whatever or whomever you call your family from those people you know they're your first trains of thought you know you're listening to their conversations you're you're learning their values what's important to them what's valuable to them what what you know if they're religious if they're not religious if they're politically minded if they're artistically minded if they're whatever whatever so that's what you're born with um and in a high control group where you are expected to obey uh not question not think not input. You have no agency as a woman, especially. You have no agency. You have, you know, you're not important. Your only way of gaining some a modicum of control over your life is um, complying. If you don't comply, then you're going to be, you know, you're going to be in a world of pain. So they do. They comply, and they, you know, when they have daughters of their own, they pass that onto them. It's like. This is the way to serve, save yourself. You know, you comply. You shut up, you comply, you don't think. You see the world through your father's eyes and then through your husband's eyes and then through your, you know, children, uh, male uh, children's eyes. Uh, you know, a lot of people in the Luz del Mundo, for example, that's uh, one of the um, characteristics of, of that group and of many high control groups. Uh, women were told to marry, I mean, they met their husbands at the altar. It's like, you're going to marry that, this person now, like now. And that, that happened, you know, whomever the apostle wanted you to marry, if you were an unconditional, I'm talking if you were unconditional, not everyone in the church, but you know, if you were an unconditional, it's, you're going to marry this guy and you're going to, that's it. You know, if he was a horrible person, if he beat you, if you, you know, you shut up and you bow down your head. So you have a daughter and you want her to, you know, not suffer maybe. And what do you do? Well, you teach her to be quiet, you know, to bow their heads. And that's how you stay out of trouble. So that perpetuates itself. And, you know, the mothers have 
again, male boys also, and they're taught to, you know, your sister is there for you to make your bed and to bring you lunch and to, you know, whatever, because that's what women do. <laughs> yeah. It's very interesting to me as well. I know you mentioned it already, this kind of similarities between almost, say, the Taliban's interpretation of Islam yes. and yes. how they treat women to how yes. LLDM does the exact same exactly same it's very high symmetric, control. You know? yes exactly it's very it's very yeah it's like a judeo-christian thing and um, well i we must include judeo-christian islam yeah. yeah it's a it's that kind of culture there's a lot of that i mean yeah hmm. not that I, it doesn't I, exist in other religions of course but yeah the the jewish version has almost had some history in mexico recently as well lev tahor yes the ones that hmm. were arrested in cancun yeah i know <laughs> Those, yes, we, those are not actually, well, we have a lot of Jewish immigration in Mexico because Mexico has always been, until now at least, um, a, a country that received migrants um, generously. So mm. there were a lot of Jewish settlers in Mexico from, you know, from the war. And they live and thrive happily ever after. Most of them are modern. We don't have a lot of Hasidic or a lot of conservative Jews. Mm. We have... Um, you know, the more progressive kind, if you know what I mean. But they do have their own synagogues and their own sort of little uh, neighborhoods to themselves also. And they thrive there. There is a modicum of anti-Semitism, but it's really not widespread. They're mostly very well accepted. And as, as could be told for every other group, I mean, in Mexico, but just that those are the ones we have Jews. We have more Jews than we have um Islamic groups. We do have yeah. Islamic groups. We have a madrasa even. We know madrasas, the schools there. Mm. Yeah, in Chiapas. It's quite um, a big Lebanese community, isn't there? There is a huge Lebanese community, but mm. they are of Christian origin. Ah, they're not, okay. Makes they're sense. Not Islam, yeah. because there, are, there is a lot of that. I mean, there's a lot yeah. of Christian. Exactly. Uh, Pal uh, Sir from Syria, Lebanon, Palestine, there is a huge Christian community, and those are the ones that establish themselves in Mexico. And same as with the Jews, they are very, very, they're even more widely accepted because you know they're Christians, as most of yeah. the country. So they, you know, people they marry with Mexi with with you know Mexicans of Hispanic, of other descents. It's it's like they're you know completely integrated with the culture even if they hold their own they're completely integrated but yes we do have these fringe groups um of, of hasidic group and also of uh of this islamic fundamentalist groups but they are very very minor it's not a yeah, yeah it's not a widespread thing really it's certainly not on the scale of lldm certainly not yes that is mm. correct and that leads me on perfectly to my next question really so in your research like what have you discovered about the overall impact of LLDM on Mexican society? Like, how far has it reached? We've talked about, like, the president, but yeah. it goes further than even that, really, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Um, again, La Luz del Mundo was, it, it, it's a group for a regular Mexican. You know, it's a group that's there. We know it. We know it exists, and we know their women wear, you know, long robes and stuff like that, and that. And we know they are very hardworking, and we know their 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 neighborhood is incredibly orderly and incredibly safe uh, for a uh, working class uh, for the regular working class compared to the regular working class neighborhoods in Mexico that are usually neglected by the authorities. 
you know, the, the streets are not paved. The, you don't have uh, electricity or, or barely any electricity. You know, most of the working class the neighborhoods in Mexico are ex very, very neglected by the authorities because, you know, it's it, that's how the country works. And the Luz del Mundo shrines, it's an example. They have great school, you know, like it's everything's clean, everything works, it's safe, it's lovely, it's quaint, you know. Because the people are like that. They're very, very, very committed. So it was an odd thing. That's how we know what we know about the Luz del Mundo. They're orderly. They're hardworking. Their women are extremely conservative. Yeah, they're a little cookie, but th that's it. And hmm. they're they're not Christ They're not Catholic, which is like a big thing in Mexico. It's like, oh yeah, they're not Catholic. It's like Catholicism is a huge part of the Mexican identity. It's becoming less and less so. It's really, really really fast becoming less and less so but there was a time where it was all encompassing you know catholicism is was like it was like the second state you know that that kind of power they had um and they still have a lot of sway over cultural issues the, the catholic church especially in the in some conservative cities like where i was born in monterey it's extremely extremely conservative the catholic church holds a huge sway and there's like protests whenever a show that you know, showcases some sort of disrespect is mounted, you know, there will be censorship, there will be, yeah, they do that. Um, but for the rest of the Mexicans, the, 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 the La Luz del Mundo is, again, is this this weird sect that sort of got away and wasn't crushed by the Catholic Church, so they, and they're there, but they really do, you know, they don't, they don't bother anyone in that, in, in at least not overtly so it's not like jehovah's witness will, that you'll have them at your door knocking at 6 a.m on a sunday and you really want to kill them it's not and and, and again they're harmless uh, in the in the sense that they don't make themselves la luz del mundo's people keep to themselves that's what i'm talking about yeah. they don't really proselytize among white swathes for society they they do it among themselves they're definitely so, happy to be an insular community absolutely Yes, yeah. yes, yes. So that's it. I mean, they're, they're not, they, that's why they, they slip through the radar for so long because they're not really, uh, they don't make waves, if you know what I mean. They like, they like do their business and that's it. Yeah. Hmm. Fair. And then we touched on it uh, previously earlier when we, you mentioned how they sued you after a mere mention. How have they handled further criticism? Because obviously what you've done by this point is more than a mere sentence. Have you faced any more pushback? Well, I'm an American citizen now, so screw them. You know, it's different. <laughs> <laughs> it's different. You cannot do that. You can do that to a Mexican citizen that, you know, when they have the power of the state behind them or when they have a lot of power of states behind them. It's like they can do that. They can harass you. Uh, I had a complete backing of my newspaper, the organization I was working back back then. So I was lucky to have their, you know, their lawyers behind me and stuff like that, which I'm incredibly great grateful. Mm -hmm. But it would have been a nightmare if I'd been, you know, like a freelancer or anything like that. And there has been nothing now. Why? Probably because one, I'm an American citizen, and two, they don't want a countersuit. You know, they don't want me to countersue them. They don't want, you know. It, it, it's not in their interest. It's yeah. it's like they are not doing that anymore. They're basically dropped. All their, their legal harassment has basically dropped to almost zero. They still do a lot of cyber harassment and stuff like that. They I still get in my Twitter feed, you know, stuff and blah, blah, blah. But who cares? I mean, 
I wouldn't be doing this. If, you know, if that was an issue. <laughs> Just ignore it. Power, power to you. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> incredible. It's incredible what you've done, like uh, showing a light on this story because there really wasn't anyone else doing it. So not not, not for the American. Yeah, that's right. Not in English, at least. I mean, not yeah. for the. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um. So now you're an expert in LLDM and say high control groups. What do you think know. society should be aware about yes. regarding groups like this? Is there anything people should look out, especially say young women or young men that might be dragged into these groups? Yes. Um, you know, it's incredibly, that's probably what vexes me the most and what hurts me the most personally, because you can once a mind is ensnared by these kind of groups, there's nothing you can do. So when you see that, when you see, uh, let's say, your daughter, your sister, or whatever, your friend, you know, become slowly enmeshed in these groups, uh, people must be on the lookout, for example, for loved ones that uh, change their, suddenly change their hairstyle. They begin like not to wear makeup anymore or to wear, you know, particular kinds of clothing or use when the people begin using like weird catchphrases that, you know, they only understand with their new friends and that kind of thing. The, 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 the thing is um, when you try to, you know, when you are, when you see that they're falling into a non-due influence from a teacher, from a guru, from a yoga teacher, from a whatever, you know, and you try to say something, anything you say in a desperate tone, in a, in a what are you doing tone, it's going to drive them further away from you and into the group because those people exploit that. Once you notice, you're too late. They've been working on that person and, you know, whomever you love, they've been working on for months. So they're already half in. And when they begin to see that you become or the parent or the whatever concerned someone becomes hostile or becomes a little worried or becomes, you know, begins to ask questions, they take it as an aggression because they've been taught to take it as an aggression. It's like, oh yeah, you're such, you know, that this would be like a normal indoctrination practice. You're such a wonderful person. We love you. You know, the group is here for you. And of course, when you first enter these groups, the first contact that people has with these groups is like, everything is stardust and little birds singing, you know, it's so lovely, wonderful. Everybody loves you and you're amazing and blah, blah, blah. That's what you get. Um, and they begin telling you, oh yeah, we all love you so much because you're so great. And you would say, for example, yeah, well, you know, but my my father is a little hard on me. He wants, you know, me to be the best. And, but he sometimes is a little, well, that's what they do. You know, they, but they, they, they do it for the best intentions, but sometimes that can hurt you. But, you know, we have the solutions. You, you can come to us for, so you're, you're half gone. And whenever you, the other, you know, the family or the loved ones become concerned, I mean, so what are you doing? Why are you spending so many hours with that group and they don't pay you anything? Why are you then? Oh yeah. Yeah. That's what they told me. You see, they want to hurt me. They want to, you know, they don't want my best interest. They don't want me to be better because I'm getting better with this group. I'm, I'm growing so much and they love me so much and they're opposing, so they must be against me. And you're screwed. Like there's, mm. yeah. So I've the only thing I would- with groups like the Scientologists where they'll, exactly. they will improve you as a person yes. in that first kind of honeymoon period. You start to see the growth within yourself and you're yes. in. And you're in and you're screwed. That, that's it. You have the hook in your, 
you know, cheek and there's no going back. And so what do you do? What I would recommend for people that are, again, you cannot speak directly to the people that are sort of getting enmeshed or, or because they they're, they're, at that point, they're not rational. They, their emotions are beginning to erode and it's very difficult to pull them out in, in any way. So I know it's counterintuitive because what you re, what you actually want to do if you see someone you love getting into some sort of group like that, you want to take them out and punch them in the face. But it's like you should do exactly the opposite, like remain loving, remain interest, remain caring, because that's the only way that your loved ones will actually think twice. You know, think twice and always, they will always know you, they have a safe haven in you. If things begin to grow weird, wherever they are, if they know they can come back at you, if you haven't said, you're an idiot, you know, they know they can come back and okay. you're not going to say, I told you so. Then they do come back. Hmm. So it's easier for that. But it's, it's country. Once that open hostility is there, they, right. they don't think you're an option anymore. So, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yes, exactly. It's it's counterintuitive, yeah. but it's it's the only thing I would, you know, yeah. try to and sort of, yeah. As soon as you said, um, once you notice these signs, it's too late. Mm-hmm. I yeah. thought you've got to be proactive. Then it, it it's just looking out for your friends. It's being supportive, loving, just mm-hmm. to everyone. You've got to try and I guess support people so they don't fall into these vulnerable positions. And that's right. kind of as good as you can do for anyone. That's right. Exactly. And they, they're going to purge it eventually. I mean, especially if you're not born into that. Mo- not all, but most people sort of come, f- if they have a support system, if they have a really loving family, whatever, they mostly purge themselves out of the group and they come through, let's hopefully less scathed than others. But yeah, they're terribly, uh, high control groups are the scourge of theirs. I mean, and, and people tend to think they're only religious. No, they're not. They're political groups. They're, you know, self-improvement groups. They're whatever, sports yeah. uh, teams. Uh, Even yeah. crime syndicates could be classed as similar. Yeah. Drug, uh, drug cartels are like that in Mexico, yeah. of course. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Has there been any crossover between cartels and LLDM? We don't know. Um, I had um reports of colombian people in ldm but i have i I did not include it in the podcast because i wasn't able to corroborate it Hmm. independently and to know if it's true but what they say in colombia is like for the santa cena for this big celebration they do once a year they ask their colombian people to send like it's like a like a tithe you know you should you should send the church blah blah i think it was like four kilos of coffee or something like that and then they would say like yeah only two kilos arrived in mexico of coffee but the whole you know i don't know a hundred kilo package would arrive in mexico but only of the coffee only half of it would be delivered and what happened with the other 50 kilos of what what was coming from colombia to mexico what are the 50 kilos of what were coming from colombia to mexico because it was not coffee You know, so yeah. There's but, something but, there, but it's hard to nail down. I have absolutely no proof. I mean, if yeah. I did, it would already be in the news. <laughs> so yeah. Uh, but I don't fascinating. I mean, yeah. We don't know. Yeah. <laughs> it's a murky old world. It's mm-hmm. once the cartels start getting involved. Yeah, no, it's terrible. I mean, yeah. Mm. Those are yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's another whole 
other thing, you know. Um, so I think that's us done for today. So Great. how can people find you? Um, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Twitter. I am on Twitter. Uh, I think that's probably the best way to contact me. Um, yeah. Hmm. And yeah. what's next for you? What's after LLDM? Well, I hoping to. I'm hoping to take a break. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, I have a book actually about my city, but I don't know how important, how interesting that would be to anyone that's outside Mexico. It's about my city, how it was founded. Uh, and how it became exactly enmeshed in the cult I was, I grew up in, hmm. because again that cult also sort of fell down, came tumbling down. I did never thought I would see that happen, but it did. Um, and you know, I'm sort of narrating the story of how they became so powerful, how they got you know this whole city under the sway, and how they evolved, and how it was discovered, and blah blah blah. So that that's that's my next project. It's a book. I don't know when it's coming because it's in the hands of the publishers now. So God knows, but it, I'm hoping this year. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. 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 Hmm. So thank it. you very much for coming on. It's been an absolute honor to have you. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. It's been really, really great. Mm. All right. I definitely hope we can work together again in the future. I love the one. Keep up the good work with your yeah. It's it's a really great website. I mean, you know, the site you have it's fantastic. It's very helpful. Thank you very For people much. People like me that delve into the dark, you know, recesses <laughs> of the human <laughs> mind. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> so, if anyone wants to find our work, you can find us on www.moderninsurgent.org, or you can find us at moderninsurgent on. Uh, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. So thank you very much, everyone, and goodbye. <laughs>